Welcome to Live Mic, Best of TPL Conversations, our regular Toronto Public Library podcast series featuring curated discussions and interviews with some of today's best-known and yet-to-be-known writers, thinkers, and artists recorded on stage at one of Toronto Public Library's 100 branches. So I would like to start uh, our talk addressing your first novel that's uh, called Kingdom Comes in English. Uh, it's it's the, the last one that came translated to English, right? But it was the, the first one that you published in Spanish. And uh, it, it's very important. It's one of the novels that's considered to be um, one of the, the champ starters of this genre that's called narconovela or narcnarratives. So I want to ask you about how do you feel about uh, you being put under this um, name tag, this genre, um, and if you think that's a fair description for your novel, and uh, if you think that narc narrative or narconovela is a term that describes well your novel and others that fall under the same general tag. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, that's a novel that I wrote when I was living in, in the border in, uh, between El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. This is a place that used to be one city and now it's two cities. It used to be called Paso del Norte. I went there to study an MFA. I already had been writing for a long time. But when I when I was there and I got I engaged with with the border culture in a way that has been uh, that made that time like one of my most productive um, moments in my life intellectually. The border is a, is a place that border specifically is a place that is always challenging you. It is always challenging your uh, preconceptions about identity, your ideas about language, your ideas about national uh, about national states, and it is I I always say it's like a laboratory for new linguistic forms, for new uh, political practices, for uh, for new ways of understanding this this uh, these two countries. Being a, a border citizen, a bordeño, which is how they call it, is 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 quite different from being just Mexican or being or being just just American so it was in this context when I started uh, like uh, shaping what would be my first published novel before this novel I already had had written another novel that that uh, of course it's it's never gonna be published because it's just bad but but it's but, 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 but I have to say that those bad novels that you write when you think that you are already a writer but you're just becoming a writer those novels are really important because that's when you start learning about your limits about what works for you what what is uh, uh, and uh, when you are starting to understand your craft so anyway but that was the first novel that I published and what I wanted to do was a novel in which I would talk about the relationship between art and power. And I had as a model for this, for this relationship the, the idea of the artist that used to work with, with kings and queens and, in, in Europe. And I always wonder how, how did Velázquez or how did Bach did all their work? Just working for all this all these uh, incestuous, stupid, uh, ignorant guys who were this, who, who were the, who, who didn't work one day in their life, you know, these these king, these kings, and at the same time they were able to 
to be independent thinkers and really original or, or, or original artists. So this was a really interesting interesting question for me. And in general, I think that the question of how artists and power, artists and institutions, artists and market. Uh, um, establish a relationship is it, a really important one. So I was not planning to write a novel based in Europe in the 17th century or in the 18th century because what I was seeing there was the, uh, an ideal stage for what, what I was trying to say. So what I chose as the representation of power was this Guy who used who was who is like a uh, like a drug lord, and as a representation of the artist, a singer who is who is creating songs to praise this guy. You know, so they are not based in any in in, in any person in real life, but they are just ba based in 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 models of of powerful men and of artists. More so, I would say that if I had to find an equivalent of that kind of powerful guy, uh, in reality, I would say that it's, uh, and really, it, this is not a, a, an easy joke. I would think in someone like Trump, you know? Trump really has the same mentality of, of the 80s Mexican drug lords in the sense, no, but, Really, in in the sense that it's it's people that think with their balls, you know, they don't think with their brains, that they love to put their names in golden letters everywhere, you know, and they love to have their furniture covered with 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 the, uh, the skin of animals, you know, and it's it, and it's all and it's there it's all a certain aesthetic that in 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 Mexico people call this art narco. You know, but 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 it is it's much older. You know, it's much older. This this kind of really cheesy, really cheesy thing. So anyway, I took us. Uh, this was a, a, I told you before that sometimes it took a long a long time answering. Uh, um, this was my model. This was my model to create this this novel. But for me, this is not a novel about drug trafficking or drug war. But yes, the drug trafficking and the drug war is part of the context in which I talk about something that is older and it's, uh, 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 and it's uh, broad, that, which is the relationship between power and, and um, on art. If I feel uh, uh, fairly represented by this tax? No, but that, that's not important. Once you publish a book, the book is no longer yours, and people can do whatever they want with that book. They can, they can read it from any perspective they, 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 they feel they, 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 they want to do it. So, so I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay, uh, but at the same time, I think that you recall that uh, this genre is very popular now in Mexico. And I was thinking that it's kind of um, a paradox because on the one hand, it sells books, it sells art. There are a lot of artists that are doing things with the narcos and all that. And of course, the, the TV series, Narcos Mexico and all that. Um, but don't, don't you think that this um, kind of, um, I don't know, um, 
contribu contributes in some way to um, the the anti-Mexican rhetoric that's used by some political politicians in the U.S. Well, you you mentioned Trump, and you mentioned that maybe your novel has this um, representation of this uh, kingpin, this drug lord that maybe is the the idea that uh, Trump uh, pulls in with with his public, right? Well, uh, Americans have never never needed a pretext to be racist and, and to be violent against Mexicans, you know? it's There's a long, long history of lynchings of Mexicans in, that, that is not registered, but, but I mean, it is registered, but it's, just not, it's not just registered in popular culture. And there is a long history of snatching of children also, uh, uh, not only of, of, Mexi of Mexican children from, 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 from other countries in, 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 in American history. And what I would say is that, at least my novel, one of the things that it does, it's that it, it tries to, to add a layer of complexity to this, to this to this issue that is not just um, a recreation of, of certain cliches of how we understand uh, how we understand criminality, and w before we were talking about that the noir novel that is uh, what we understand now as a as a noir novel, um, which is is really interesting how in um, when the the American noir novel started becoming respectable, yes, to say it was thanks to to the to the French critics, you know. Um, that say these these writers are saying something that is really important, which is that you cannot simply divide society between good and and evil, and it's not as simple as the police and the detectives representing good and the thieves and the and the killers representing evil. But very often, uh, the the line is is uh, uh, disappears. You know. In Latin America, as you know, that line has never existed. You know, we 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 have never trusted the police in the same way that it, that, that that in North America there is distrust in the police. And that is one of the uh, the reasons why the noir novel is, is so successful in 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 our countries. So what I'm what I'm going to is that one of the things that that literature literature does is to contest the institutional fictions and to challenge the fictions about how society is organized. So I cannot control if uh, the people that are previously racist uh, use one of my books to, 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 to do it. Or just to give you one last example, um, politicians tend to use art to justify their own failures, you know. So very often, for instance, in Mexico, in other moments, there have been politicians that try to, to forbid narco corridos, these songs that talk about, uh, about these issues, because they say that they give bad ideas to the young, to the young people, you know? Which is the most stupid thing. It's like, it's like oh yeah, I, I just heard a song about a guy who makes a lot of money, and now I'm gonna just buy a gun and start killing people, you know? It's, it's, like, it's like criminals don't become criminals just because they hear a song, you know? 
uh, and again, Donald Trump didn't become this guy, this evil man just because just because he, he listened to the Smiths or something in the eighties, you know, because it, it's 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 a whole other set of circumstances. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. And as you mentioned, the noir novel, um, I want to, to bring to, to attention the thing that you recently did the, the prologue to this very classic noir Mexican that's called The Mongolian Conspiracy by Rafael Bernal. And you also brought uh, a prologue to the, the book Narco Leaks by Wilbert Torre. So uh, I was thinking if you see that there's a connection between this uh, the first noir in Mexico to the um, current narratives or the current noir narratives in Mexico, or if you think that's something totally different, or maybe you can talk about uh, your feelings for this um, novel by Bernal that you said before that's very important for you. Well, um, uh, this novel, if you haven't read it, uh, read it please read it. It's a, it's a, a really, really important uh, novel for a, a couple of generations of writers. It's it's already translated into English. It's, it's a Mongolian conspiracy. Yes. It's, it's in, in Spanish, El Complot Mongol. And it's uh, uh, in, in its moment, it, it was, uh, no, nobody read it. It was just about this Mexican police who has to work with a KGB agent and a CIA agent because they are trying to to stop a possible plot against an American president who's going to visit Mexico. And it's this whole reflection of power from a Mexican policeman who is a killer, who has no morals, who is a, a, who is a thug. And this guy who is a thug, he's looking at the KGB agent, at the CIA agent, and he said, like, wow. These guys have no morals, you know. So that is that 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 is real. That is a really interesting thing. But more than that, one one thing that this 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 book did to for American literature, and in the way that the noir novel did for for the American literature, is that it it um, just. Uh, I'm not going to say that it it, it broke uh, a, a certain uh, glass ceiling, what I'm saying, but it just made made more apparent that this supposed division between low art and high art was just artificial, and that you can use the popular language and the, and 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 uh, really vulgar problems to talk about important issues you know and in that way yes that is a novel that taught us a lot of things of how to speak about things that are happening right now and maybe to to go back using this question to, to the last question is when people challenge how this this kind of writing in general this kind of art can be interpreted by the public or by the, or by or by the, by power I always give this example. Think about the story of a guy who has sex with his mother, kills his father, and then he takes his own eyes. That is like, that is like a narco story, totally. And that is one of the monuments of Western culture, you know? So this, this kind of senseless violence has has been a source of a, a, a source uh, uh, for art 
in every single society. It's, it's yes, that uh, it's so close that sometimes people don't see that it's, that it's real art and that, it, and, and that, that it's, it's talking about important issues. Yeah, that's, that's a, an interesting uh, idea. I always think about how when we read or we watch the, uh, the Godfather movies, uh, we, we don't get, uh, I don't know, we, we accepted them and we watch them as pieces of art, but maybe sometimes when we talk about narco-narrativa or narco-novela, there are all these things that come out, that, like the, the thing that you said about the narco-corrido, that these novels are um, being used as examples for people and things like that. And I think that when we, again, when we, when we watch The Godfather, we will never think about that, but that's something that happened like, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So maybe that's the difference, right? Yeah, yeah. Time, uh, time makes things uh, less scandalous in, in in that sense. Like Oedipus. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's move to your uh, other novels, um, the signs preceding the the end of the war and the transmigration of bodies that you have here, and you're going to read a passage uh, after, um, which is, by the way, one of my favorites, and your editors as well, right? <laughs> you, you told me. <laughs> so um, I, I'm interested in if, well, because these both um, novels uh, seems to, to have this sense of ending, termination or dystopia. And I was wondering if is uh, there are any particular reasons for this common topic in both novels. And while Signs of uh, um, Preceding the, the End of the War has clear reference to Mexican indigenous culture and mythology, uh, I was wondering if there's anything similar to, to be found in the dystopia that you present in the transmigration of bodies. No, they're, they're very different books. In retrospect, uh, they have been considered, and I, I'm fine with that as a, as a trilogy, because they share certain certain linguistic linguistic traits and they they share certain certain similarities similarities that, that the protagonist the things that i only see now but that in the moment i i really didn't plan it like that like that the the characters in the protagonist in all three novels somehow they are in between in between in, in between countries, in between spaces, in between people that are fighting. And uh, in a way, they are like translators or negotiators. And obviously, that is something that has been in my mind all, all this time, and, um, but I didn't plan it like that. Um, the, uh, the structure for science preceding the end of the world is something that I had a while before I, I wrote the novel. I, this is, this is uh, I'm gonna try to keep this short because I can just keep talking about this specific thing for, for, for a long time. Um, there is uh, a, a narrative in Mexican, in Mexican culture, which is the narrative of descent to Mictlan. Um, we don't know exactly what it meant. We don't have the exact the exact uh, account of what it was, this narrative, but I'm gonna tell you what I know and based on, uh, on, on what, I, what I knew before and what I researched for the novel. Among the Mexicas, what usually is known like the Aztecs, but the, the, 
the official name would be Mexicas. Uh, um, there, when you died, you would go to either to, to one of three places. Mm -hmm. Either it would be the Tlalocan, uh, which is a way, a, a place where you would go if you die as a child or if you die of uh, death by water. And because Tlaloc is the, the, the god of water. And this is a place that apparently was really nice. All you did all day was to, to, to have honey and there was a lot, a lot of birds. And there's the Ilwika Tonatiu, which is a, a place where you would go if you were a warrior or if you were a woman who died uh, in labor, because the, in that in those cases, women were considered like warriors that, that died in the middle of a battle. And then there was the, the Mictlan, which, which is the place where you would go if you died of old age, accident, or a regular disease. And as I'm saying, there's a, a lot of gaps here, but this is what, what we know. And in order to get to this place, to the Mictland, you would have to go to several underworlds. And in each of these underworlds, there was something happened there. And the way it's interpreted is that in each of these underworlds, you would be stripped of something that constitutes you as a human being, of your sense of feeling, of your, uh, of your sense of, of, of taste, of your memories, whatever, until you you reach the last one, which is not hell, which is the, the erroneous way in, in, in which the, the, the Spanish friars interpreted it. It's just a, a place without smell, without light, without sound. And there you become part of uh, some sort of spiral of recreation. Anyway, I knew part of this. I knew the, like a simpler version of, of this since I was uh, young. And I always thought, this is like a great structure for a novel. And when I decided to do it, I, I, I researched a lot more of it. And I decided to use not only the structure, but other things, other values from the, from the pre-Hispanic culture, other symbols. Uh, but what I decided it was also that the reader didn't need to know this. This was just a model that I used to give density and volume and certain and certain breadth to the to the novel. But this is not an uh, archaeological text. This is not a history text. So this was just a, uh, something that I used to to give to give direction um, to the story. And the story is the story of a woman who goes to this other side which could be interpreted as the United States, but it could be interpreted also as death. You know? Okay, so I think that, that answers why there aren't any names on these places, because that's one of the things that uh, comes to, to the reader, that you can identify maybe these places by the geography or the things that happen or things surrounding, but there are any, any names. Is this the reason? Well, uh, uh, it's it's part of the reason. Names are really important for me, and they are so important that I I, I rarely use the names that we have in in, in the real world. Let's say, um, I'm, I'm going to try just to explain this. If 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 I say this is happening in in Mexico. Readers who don't know Mexico or, or or Mexican readers, they have a very 
fixed idea maybe of what it means, the word. The same way that if, we, if, if I say this is happening in Australia, you know, people immediately start imagining a plot with a lot of kangaroos, I don't know. I'm just, say, I'm just saying that words, sometimes words tend to, tend to simplify really complex things. Mm -hmm. So this is the reason why instead of using the names of, of places, I, I make the bet that people will do that in their, in their, in their heads, but that I'm not doing the work for them before that I, what I'm offering is a complex story at the, and then they can relate it. Oh, well, this has to do with the Mexican issue, with the American issue, with the border issue, with, with, with the kangaroo issue. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I'm sure there's a commission in Australia about it. Okay, uh, I would like now to take a little advantage uh, on your um, degree in political science and, uh, and talk about politics a little, maybe. Um, so last year, for the first time, a left-leaning politician won the presidency in Mexico. And I would like to ask you, what do you think about this turn of events? If you think that uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador will be able to provide on the promises that landed him the, the presidency, and if uh, you think that Mexico is definitely turning to the left, or if AMLO was just a, uh, an exception? Uh, I don't think AMLO is leftist. I think he's a different thing. Uh, I, I, I don't even know he's sure what, what he is in this, in this sense. I think he, um, what he, I think he, he, represents the real possibility of breaking with, 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 uh, with the previous administrations and with the previous regimes. The thing is, we have had, uh, we have had a, a change of regime in the year 2000, and then there was a, a, another government by, by PAN, by the, by the right-wing uh, um, party, and they will total failures, failures. And not, not, I, I, the, the word failure, I think, it's too soft for what they did to the country in the, in, in the last 18 years, you know. Um, so Lopez Obrador is more than, um, more than uh, a clear path. It was just the, 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 the clear decision to break with that, with that uh, inertia uh, that that had different colors, you know, but it was basically the same thing. Um, so what I think he's doing, with a lot of problems, with a lot of resistance from from the oligarchy, from certain part of the media, from a, from the really weak but really really loud opposition, what he's doing. And with his own mistakes, and some of them really serious, what he's doing, I think, is trying to dismantle this old order, try disappearing certain institutions. And but I'm not sure that he has clarity of uh, of the path ahead, which it has its advantages and it has a lot of problems. It has its advantages because we are a society that we have been. Uh, we have been taught that we have just to follow 
what uh, what what the, the the man in charge told us. So in that sense, he is betting. To, he he is um, uh, uh, maybe betting is not, not, not the word. He's he is putting forward certain decisions that create the space for people to create new institutions and new ways of of, of doing politics. But if, as as we know, in moments of chaos, in moments when when the old order is disappearing, anything can can happen. So in that way, I understand that a lot of people are scared. It, it is a, a, a scary moment because you know during during the pre-regime, it was not as scary. It was dull and it was authoritarian and it was repressive, but it was not as scary. And during the pan regime, during the, the 12 years of the of the pan government, it was it 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 was incredibly mediocre and corrupt, and eventually it became scary, you know, but for different reasons. So I really don't know. What I can say is this: I truly uh, think that he is an honest man, which is revolutionary in itself in a country as Mexico. And I think he is, is making serious mistakes in, in terms of not being able to create viable solutions in the short term, while at, at the same time he is demanding uh, he is demanding loyalty from a lot of people to 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 these decisions in the in the short term. If my answer is not that clear, is because I am part of this chaos, you know. But well, that's it. Okay. Uh, I would like like to ask you about your last published book, which has not been translated to English yet, right? It's called El Incendio de la Mina El Bordo, that we can say it's kind of the fire in the El Bordo mine, which is a nonfiction. And well, the, the first question is obviously is going to be published in English. Yes, yes, this is a book that I expected to be just basically for the readers not only in Mexico but just in my in my hometown in Pachuca, and well, I, I'll explain it in a second why. But my editor in another stories in, in, in London, he read it and he said, I totally want to publish it, so it's going to be out in, in, in English next year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, could you introduce the, the public about this novel? Yes. So the, the, the thing is this. Uh, this is part of, uh, of uh, my PhD dissertation when I was in Berkeley. I decided that I didn't want to do a PhD dissertation that had to do like something horrible like life and works of Octavio Paz or something like that, you know? <laughs> so so, so uh, I wanted to do something that it was really relevant for me. And I knew this story that in 1920, there was a fire in a mine in Pachuca, my hometown who used to, uh, that used to be a mining town. And in that moment, the mine was owned by by uh, an uh, administrator by uh, an American company. And there was a fire in March uh, 10, 1920. And what they decided to do was to close off the, the, the mine, which was called El Bordo, to stop the fire. But they did it when many of the miners were still inside. So basically, they, they just murdered them. And there was an investigation. And the investigation was not about why they did it, but was just about the origin of the fire. 
So what I did in my dissertation, that it, it actually sounds better than what, what I'm saying, but, 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 but what I did was that I analyzed the judicial file of that investigation as fiction. Because this is something that, that, is, that is part of, 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 uh, of, of Mexican normalcy, the institutional fictions, the institutional lies, you know? And, uh, and I compare that with other set of texts that have to do with the issue of impunity in, in Mexico. But afterwards, I decided to just take that part of the dissertation and tell the story as it is, because even though a lot of people in Pachuca know it, it it's basically the people who have families that worked in the mines. And I wanted it to be part of the memory of the city. So I took what I thought was more credible of the different sources that I found, and I just told the story in uh, in a in, like 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 in a single shot, I wanted it to be like like a powerful story. Um, it's nonfiction. It was it it's probably the book that has been more difficult for me for a lot of reasons. But the main reason is that I didn't want to speculate. I didn't want to fantasize, which is what I always do, in, and and I didn't want to use other language beyond the language that I found in the sources. So this was a very clear limit. And, uh, but in the end, uh, well, I was able to do a very short book. And yes, it's, it's coming out next year. Next year. Well, it is in, in fact very powerful. So when it comes out, I, I recommend you to, to read it. So the, we're wrapping up. But first, I want you to read us uh, a page of the Transmigration of Bodies, uh, if you're OK with that. Should I leave just one page? I, I've, I no, no, because I, I yes, we have, we have time. time. Yeah, yeah okay. OK. So uh, as you wish. <laughs> OK. Well. This is a novel about a guy who wants to stay inside but has to go outside. He, um, I don't know how that sounded, but, but uh, um, this is a guy who, for lack of a better word, is a fixer. And he wants to stay inside because there is a woman that he likes and, and he has to go outside because he has a boss that asks him to go outside to solve a problem. And he wants to stay inside also because outside there is a lot of fear because there is an epidemic and he doesn't want to, to be in touch with that. Um, and uh, I have always thought about the, 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 the theme of the epidemic as, as, as a really interesting one to, to create a novel because that's when, when you test yourself, how brave you are, how much you trust your neighbor, how, how much empathy you can, you, you can have. And at that same time, it had to do with the way I, I, I understood what was happening in Mexico, which was a total distrust, distrust of the authorities, of our neighbors, of, um, and, uh, and a state of fear. So what I'm going to read, I'm just going to read at the the first two pages, and then a couple of pages uh, of what happens when he is inside and he still doesn't know that he has to go outside. A scurvy thirst awoke him, 
and he got up to get a, gla a glass of water. But the tap was dry, and all that trickled out was a thin stream of dank air. Eyeing the third of a skull on the table with venom, he got the feeling it was going to be an awful day. He had no way of knowing it, was, it already was. Had been for hours. Truly awful. Much more awful than the private little inferno he'd built, he'd built himself on booze. He decided to go out. He opened his door, was disconcerted not to see the scamper of La Ñora, who'd lived there since the days when the big house was, was actually a big house and not two floors of little houses, room for, for folks half down of, the, of their lock. And then opened the front door and walked out. The second he, he took a step, his back creaked to tell him something was off. He knew he wasn't dreaming because his dreams were so un unremarkable. If ever he managed to sleep several hours in a row, he dreamed. But his dreams were so, life, so lifelike, they provided no rest. Only small variation on his everyday undertakings and his everyday conversations and everyday fears. Occasionally, his teeth fell out. But aside from that, it was just everyday stuff. Nothing like this. Buzzing. Then a dense block of mosquitoes tethering themselves to a puddle of water as though attempting to lift it. There was no one, nothing, not a single voice, not one sound on an avenue that by that time should have been rammed with cars. Then he looked closer. The puddle began at the foot of a tree like someone had leaned up against it, it to vomit. And what the mosquitoes were sucking up wasn't water but blood. And there was no wind. Afternoons, it blew like a bitch, so there, would, there, there, should be, there should be at least a light breeze. Yet, all he got was stagnation, solid lethargy. Things felt much more present when they looked so abandoned. He closed the door and stood there for a second, not knowing what to do. He returned to his room, and he stood there too, staring at the table and the bed. He sat on the bed. What worried him most was not knowing what to fear. He was used to fending off the unexpected. But even the unexpected, the unexpected had its limits. You could trust that when you opened the door every morning. That you, could, you could trust that when you opened the door every morning, the world wouldn't be emptied of people. This, though, was like falling asleep in an elevator and waking up with, with the doors open on a floor you never knew existed. One thing at a time, he said to himself. First water. Then we'll figure out what the fuck. Water. He pricked up his nose and turned, attentive, to look around the place again and then said aloud, of course. He got up, went into the bathroom with a glass, pulled the lid of the tank and saw barely three fingers. He'd gotten up in the night to piss and the tank hadn't refilled after he flushed. He scrapped the bottom with the glass, but there was only enough for half. One drop of water was all that was left in his body, and it had picked a precise place on his temple to bore it with it, its way out. Fuck it, he said. Since when, since when do I believe those bastards? So those bastards are the government, and he, because they have been talking about something that is going to happen, and on, on, on now realize, he realizes that this actually happens, the epidemic. So in the next pages, he is inside, and he gets in touch finally 
with this woman who is called here the three times blonde, and because he has never had the time, the, the, the opportunity to be in touch with her. And now that they are caged inside this big house, he finally has, has this one shot. And he's about to do it when he realizes that something has, uh, is that he's lacking time. As soon as he sensed he didn't need further permission, he pulled off her panties and got naked and pulled her to him by the hips. But then she said, where's the condom? Motherfuck the condom. He asked himself the same thing and hadn't answered himself, don't fucking worry about it right now. He put his pants back, back on, said, don't move. He stepped into the hall barefoot. The anemic student was nowhere to be seen. He ran into his apartment reciting the prayer of the overheated horn dog. <laughs> oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. May he the drunken me. May he the dumb fuck me. May he, the me who never, ever, ever knows where the shit is. May he have saved one, just one, lubricated or corrugated, colored or flavored, magnum or tight fit. Oh, please, holy saint of horn dogs, grant me just one condom. <laughs> but he knew there were none. <laughs> He'd used that prayer the last time, months ago, and managed to unearth the one under the bed, gleaming and glorious as a national hero. The very last one. This was not a time for heroes or miracles. Fear was what had granted him these hours of intimacy, but now, it was showing its virulent side. Go on, off to the shop, lady killer. That's it. Thank you. Thank you for, for your reading. It was very <laughs> powerful. Well, let me just say one thing. Once I received, when I had a Twitter account, I, 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 I deleted it because uh, I was always angry. Anyway, <laughs> once I received a message from a guy saying, uh, I used the prayer yesterday. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> so, you know, if literature can serve a purpose, you know. It's good to, to know. To, to help people who have safe sex. I, you know, you know <laughs> that's it. <laughs> On the Live Mike episode page, livemike.ca, you will find biographies of featured writers, guests, and hosts, as well as links to TPL's collections or other episode-related materials. For all of TPL's podcast series, go to tpl.ca slash podcasts. Toronto Public Library is one of the world's busiest urban public library systems. Every year, more than 20 million people visit our 100 branches in neighborhoods across the city and borrow more than 32 million items. Live Mike, Best of TPL Conversations, is produced by the Toronto Public Library. Episodes are produced by Natalie Curtis, Jorge Amigo, and me, Gregory McCormick. Technical support by Michelle DeMarco and George Paniotu. AV support by Jennifer Casper and Mesfin Baisisu. And marketing support by Tanya Oleksik. Music is by Worst Pop Band Ever, also known as WPBE. I'm Gregory McCormick, Manager of Cultural and Special Event Programming at Toronto Public Library. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another episode of Live Mike, Best of TPL Conversations.